The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good morning, everyone. Welcome. Um, please feel free to move forward. We're a small group. And let's just do names. I'm Brigitte. Ronnie. Um, I don't know if there's anything we need to announce. Do you know, Dan? Probably not. (laughs) Good. Oh, Friday is a Dharma practice day. Yes, yes. With Shin Kwan, Jim Podolsky, and and Chris, I think. Yeah, this Friday. And it's it's, um, a wrap-up to the Eightfold Path. Okay, well, this morning I'm going to talk about something that that might be surprising to you, might be new to you, it certainly was to me, and that is the Buddhist teachings on prosperity. When I first was introduced to a book by that name, I was very skeptical and very, uh, well, interested, drawn to it, but also not quite trusting it. Um, For all the Buddhist teachings, I had never heard anything specifically on prosperity, and it almost seemed um, antithetical to uh, many of his teachings on simplicity and renunciation, etc., So, but I, like maybe many of you and many people in our culture, I think, have always held ambivalent feelings about money. Um, On the one hand, it's necessary, right? We have to have money to live and take care of ourselves. On the other hand, it often seems, at least to me, that there's way too much emphasis put on money. And so I I was very drawn to see what did the Buddha have to say about prosperity or about wealth. And uh, I'm going to say at the beginning that I think the most important thing to remember is that, number one, it's okay to accumulate well, but what's most important is how we accumulated it and how we spend it. And we see wealth, or we think of wealth, within the context of a full lay life. So it's not just a phenomenon that we focus on, but part of an entire lay life. The, the subtitle is At Home, At Work, In the World, and I think that suggests it, 
that it's not just the accumulation of money, but it is the accumulation of wealth. And at one point he says, happiness is our greatest wealth. Within the context of a full, happy, lay life. So I think that kind of sets the stage and, and gives it a much broader context. So at the time of the Buddha, apparently, um, in, in Kosala and Magadha, where the Buddha was living, there was a growing um, wealth from business and from trade. And as you know, his followers, he and his followers, the monastics, uh, were dependent on the lay community for support. They didn't handle money. They didn't handle food. Um, They did not, in that sense, take care of themselves. And so they had this important interdependent relationship uh, with the lay community. Therefore, it was important to the Buddha to speak to the lay community about this wealth that they were accumulating. Apparently, something like three-quarters, 80% of his talks were given to monastics, to his um, monk and nun followers, but, of course, at times, he was talking to the broader community, the lay community as well. And this was one of those times when he was talking about um, the accumulation, the making of, of money, of wealth, and how that should be done, and uh, how it should be spent. So, like with karma, the Buddha was the one to introduce ethics into the accumulation of wealth. Apparently at the time, there were many teachers that were talking about uh, accumulating money, accumulating wealth, so that you could satisfy, you could enjoy all of your senses almost a sort of hedonistic um, kind of approach. And the Buddha's approach was different. Um, He said, wealth is not just for our own pleasure, our own enjoyment, but it needs to be shared with um, others around us. And it's important how we make and accumulate this wealth. So apparently he said that he admired one who accumulates wealth but is not intoxicated by it, is not taken by it. And I think that speaks well to today, doesn't it? Um, Some people clearly are intoxicated by, by their wealth. That's not the point. (laughs) The point of accumulating it. And I think the reason the Buddha could say that he admires someone who has amassed a good fortune 
was because he suggested that it was through hard work and diligence and skillful actions and wise investing and wise protection that someone could amass um, a fair amount of wealth. He also said that wealth is like a rainfall that nourishes life. I like that very much. Because of this ambivalent relationship to money, I find phrases like that that suggest that, um, that money can be a very nice thing stand out for me. So he suggested that intention and right effort should be the essential foundation for material success. Intention and right effort. Intention, you know, is important throughout the teachings. Always underpinning what we do is what is our intention? What is the intention behind it? So what is our intention for accumulating wealth, prosperity? Is it to bolster our identity, our sense of self, which may not be so skillful? Or is it so that we can share with others? Make ourselves happy as well. He says that repeatedly. But share it also with others. Many, many years ago, before we had this building, and there was talk, we were a much smaller sangha, of course, and there was talk of, of buying a building. And... Um, I said to Gil one day, I'm going to buy one lottery ticket. (laughs) And if I win, (laughs) it will go for the building. And he sort of laughed and said, well, that's not really how I'd like for the money to come to be. (laughs) But if you do, (laughs) we'll accept it. Well, I did buy one ticket and I didn't win. But that was, I've never bought another lottery ticket, but that came up as I was talking of intention, because that was my intention, to buy that ticket was solely to help to produce IMC. So I'd like to read a section from um, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation in the Buddha's words that speaks to the proper use of wealth. So remember that at the time it was an oral tradition, so there's a lot of repetition. The Blessed One addressed the householder and the Pindika with the wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, the noble disciple undertakes four worthy deeds. 
what for? With the wealth thus gained, he makes himself happy and pleased and properly maintains himself in happiness. He makes his parents happy and pleased and properly maintains them in happiness. He makes his wife and children, his slaves, workers, and servants happy and pleased and properly maintains them in happiness. He makes his friends and colleagues happy and pleased and properly maintains them in happiness. This is the first case of wealth gone to good use, fruitfully applied and used for a worthy cause. Further, householder, with the wealth thus gained, the noble disciple makes provisions against the losses that might arise on account of fire and floods, kings and bandits, and unloved heirs. He makes himself secure against them. This is the second case of wealth gone to good use. Further, householder, with the wealth thus gained, the noble disciple makes the five kinds of offerings to relatives, guests, ancestors, the king, and the devas. This is the third case of wealth gone to good use. Further, householder, with the wealth thus gained, the noble disciple establishes a lofty offering of alms to those ascetics and brahmins who refrain from vanity and negligence, who are settled in patience and gentleness, who are devoted to taming themselves, to calming themselves, and to attaining Nibbana, an offering that is heavenly, resulting in happiness conducive to heaven. This is the fourth case of wealth gone to good use, fruitfully employed and used for a worthy cause. These, householder, are the four worthy deeds that the noble disciple undertakes with the wealth acquired by energetic striving, amassed by the strength of his arms, earned by the sweat of his brow, righteous wealth, righteously gained. For anyone whose wealth is expended on other things, apart from these four worthy deeds, that wealth is said to have gone to waste, to have been squandered and used frivolously. But for anyone whose wealth is expended on these four worthy deeds, that wealth is said to have gone to good use, to have been fruitfully employed and used for a worthy cause. So I wonder what you think of that. If you look at Bill Gates, he wouldn't. It doesn't. None of those categories fit because Bill Gates has billions of dollars, but he's donated much money to to charity like AIDS and and uh, universities and stuff like that. So I don't see any of those categories.
there may not be a specific category, although it could be under the needy. And he does talk specifically about giving to the needy, giving to those in need. And I think many of the causes that the Gates Foundation supports would clearly fall in that category. Um, health, you know, et cetera. Yeah. It occurs to me to say that, um, that these teachings, like all of the Buddhist teachings, are really guidelines. And I think it's, it's uh, important that we see them that way and that we uh, use them to inform our decisions and inform our lives. We were talking about this last night, my group in Morgan Hill, and um, we're all women in our 60s. And we were all saying, you know, he says in this, um, by the sweat of your brow and by the strength of your arms, and we're not at that stage in life, you know. Um, we're, not, we're not energetically striving to be successful or to, you know, amass a lot. For me, what I take from that is is his continuous reference to the importance of the individual making effort. And not that we all have to be out there, you know, um, striving to get wealthy. striving to be um, successful like Bill Gates or anybody else. Um, I think we could look at what does success mean. And at one point, the Buddha talks about success being how we treat other people. That's a much broader context than just a dollar amount. And again, so often in our culture, in many cultures, of course, success gets measured only in terms of material wealth. How many dollars we can claim we are worth uh, determines our success. And I think it's important to take a look at what do we mean by success and put it in a much broader context than just dollar amount. Anything else? Yeah. Um, I I think it's important that the things that he didn't say, like he's not talking about accumulating stuff, you know, so you can have the nicest car on the block or you can have the nicest pleasure garden or or any of those things. And he's also not talking about um, trying to find happiness in those things that you could buy, but rather security um, against the floods or the fires or the kings um, and caring for 
your parents and your family. Um, so there's a certain amount of practicality, but he's also not compromising on what he's saying um, everywhere else about um, clinging or aversions. Uh, he's not compromising principles. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Thank you for that. I think, I think you're right. It's always very important to look at what's not said. And um, I, too, have found nothing in these teachings that conflicts with any other of his teachings. It's, it's an expanding. I think it's, it's a way of looking at um, wealth or success. Yes. Mm-hmm. A question: At what point in his life were were these writings? Because I know early on he left his wife and his father and his family, and um, and he considers wealth providing for them through good deed. And um, so I know he went back to his family. He went back to visit, yeah. Towards the end of his life, didn't he go back to give Oh, he went back after about six years, I think it was. Um, Eight years, I guess, because uh, a couple years after he was enlightened. But he didn't go back to stay. He went back to visit. Mm -hmm. And and he came from wealth, actually. Yeah, he he initially left wealth, knowing that there was suffering and he went to... That's right, understand it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I don't know at what period these teachings were given. Um, my assumption is they were probably given throughout his lifetime of teaching. And you're right, and he does say um, that renunciation, i.e. monastics, uh, is still the best way to attain lasting happiness. But he also says, for lay people, we can attain happiness by living a full and skillful lay life. Some people say, and certainly understandable, that it can be even more challenging to live a skillful lay life than um, a renunciate life. Because within the monastic community, everything supports renunciation, right? There's no or very little temptation. And so, um, in some ways, that makes it a very protected way of life and, and perhaps easier. It can be much more challenging for those of us that live in the world of money and um, and work, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to keep our um, integrity and and follow a uh, a very mm, precept-driven, non-harming-driven way of life. So let me say a little more, and then we can have more discussion. 
There are a couple of guidelines he talks about for the earning of wealth. The person engaged in profit-making should not deceive or harm customers or any others involved. That has huge relevance for today, doesn't it? (laughs) Should not deceive or harm customers or anyone else involved. The person engaged in profit should gradually increase wealth without squeezing others, like bees taking nectar without harming the flowers. It's a nice image, isn't it? (laughs) Gradually increase our wealth, but without squeezing anyone else. That's certainly not always considered... (laughs) valuable, is it? Um, That reminds me, too, to say that in Buddhist practice, the end never justifies the means. And so this is really pointing to that, that every step needs to be done with integrity. And in fact, we do not hold on, we're not attached to the end. Wanting to to be secure, wanting to take care of our family, wanting to be generous, wanting to serve others, does not necessarily mean accumulating great wealth. We can do all that with much less. Much, much less. So then he talks about how to treat employees. One, assign work and duties according to their skills and abilities. Two, pay salaries fitting their work and service. Three, provide medical assistance. Four, make wholesome food available. And five, allow for leave and vacation at appropriate times. Those who fail to provide for their employees are unqualified to be wealthy. (laughs) When I read that, make wholesome food available, it reminds me of what I have recently learned about Google. I have a friend whose son works at Google and eats all three meals a day at Google. Amazing. And apparently they do try to provide quite healthful, um, good food. Of course, that's why the IRS is coming after them to tax. (laughs) So, um, like what I just read, the Buddha suggested three uses of one's wealth. One, and here it is, listed first again, to experience happiness in life. This is another one that surprised me, um, that he keeps suggesting that it's okay to experience happiness. 
two, use wealth to treat friends, associates, relatives, and the needy, to honor dead relatives, to fulfill duties to the government, and to conduct rituals. Interesting. Three, feed the monastics who have dedicated their lives to purification and realization of Nibbana. Proper use of wealth is essentially the purpose of having wealth. Since the wealthy are certainly indebted to society for their prosperity, they are obliged to contribute to society instead of using all of their wealth for themselves. It's an interesting recognition, isn't it, that that none of us um, are solely responsible for what we have accumulated. We all are part of this society. Um, We have all had advantages that have helped us on the way. None of us is entirely self-made. Sometimes people like to think that, that they are entirely self-made and therefore have no responsibility to anyone else, including the government. But this is a clear recognition that none of us is solely self-made. You know, we have the advantage of the family we were born into, of the country we were born into, of you know, uh, all the services that are provided to us that have enormously supported us to become who we are. And recognizing that, then we have a debt of gratitude to others that have supported our, um, our prosperity, our accumulating prosperity. So he also suggested dividing our wealth into four equal parts. Two parts for investment. That's interesting, isn't it? Two parts for investment. And somebody was saying, you know, what, what kind of investments would they have had at the time of the Buddha? Clearly not the stock market. I don't, know, I don't know, but I can imagine it would be things like land or cattle or agriculture, something like that. But the inference, I think, is, uh, is the ability uh, or the need to increase the amount of wealth. Again, very interesting. Huh? Not just for the accumulation, but so that we have more to be generous with, to take care of ourselves and our family. Then the second part, the second quarter, is to be saved. Saved for emergencies. Um, It can be used in the event of unforeseen circumstances, like he lists fire, water, thieves, bad friends, and relatives. (laughs) Not so different from today. 
um, an insurance in a way. And then the fourth was to be used on living expenses. Pretty different, probably, from most people's equation today. But something to consider. For many, for many of us, probably many in the middle class, um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be even possible, let alone feasible, to take half of our earnings for investment and only a quarter for living expenses. Um, we'd have to be quite wealthy to be able to do that. He said, taking care of children, protecting the rights of employees, and paying a portion of income to the government are essential to proper use of wealth. So he, like Jesus, suggested, you know, Jesus said, render unto God what is God, and unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And essentially the Buddha is saying the same thing. Use, use your money wisely. Um, a part of it goes to the government, goes to, he might have said, the kings, um, those that are ruling. So this is what he says about right effort. I found out two important principles not to be content with what I had achieved, and not to give up the effort for the highest achievement. Right effort is the first step towards success. Right effort brings benefits and happiness to a lay person. And that's quoted in the chapter uh, titled Gaining Wealth. But it occurs to me that uh, he could very well be speaking of the spiritual path. In fact, that makes even more sense to me, not to be content with what we have gained, but to always be looking for the highest, which, of course, would be freedom, nirvana, the end of all suffering. And to make our best efforts at all times. So he also talked about psychological preparation for material success. Being a therapist, this I found quite interesting also. And he said, we must remove inner barriers, self-imposed limitations, the devaluation of one's capabilities, skills, and potential. Removing these barriers to progress on the spiritual path or lay life. I find it interesting that, I mean, that's so relevant to today. And I always find it interesting that people apparently had the same kinds of of limiting thoughts and ideas that so many people have today. And he talked about three beliefs that hinder and create limitations. And these um, are beliefs that were strong at the time of the Buddha. And, and we still see some of it today. It was, at the time, um, 
Brahmanism was the religion. And so there was a belief that whatever happened was the will of Brahma. Today, some people might say the will of God. Another one was the Vedic theory of karma. And this was the theory that it's your karma. Nothing you can do. You have to wait it out or work it out. Um, You know, that's just the way it is. And in some Buddhist countries today, that's how karma is seen. It's your karma from past lives or past deeds, and you just have to grin and bear it and hope for a better rebirth. And the third was the law of of predetermination, which I don't know is so strong today. Um, I don't hear much about it, but I know uh, in the Christian church there used to be uh, quite a debate about free will and predetermination. But the important thing, I think, about all three of those is the sense that it's totally out of our hands. And what the Buddha taught over and over again was our own personal responsibility and ability, that we have the ability to direct our lives. Obviously, we don't control everything. But, um, but it's not just the will of Brahma or God. Um, we have a part in it. And karma, we affect karma. Karma, you know, means action. And um, what he's really teaching is that all of our actions have consequences, skillful or unskillful. But we are the determiner of that karma. So we can act skillfully and increase good results of our karma, or we can act unskillfully and, unfortunately, increase um, the results of, of not-so-skillful actions. So pointing again and again to our responsibility. And this becomes so evident for me over and over again when I do interfaith panels I uh, work with a group in San Jose um, that does religious education in schools. And so I'm often part of a four- or five-member panel that will go into mostly high school or college and talk about our individual tradition. I say tradition because I don't call Buddhism a faith. But... Over and over again, it's so clear to me the, uh, the emphasis on the Buddha on our individual actions and our individual responsibility. Not in a blaming way, but not in a way of just giving up either. It's, you know, somebody else's uh, power. Um, he suggests over and over that we can affect our lives by... <coughs> the skillful choices and decisions that we make or don't make. And he suggests that we have faith in our own potential. That when we empower our mind with great determination, we can succeed if we pursue our goal with confidence. 
And this, of course, is a strong teaching in uh, um, positive psychology or the power of the mind today, that so much of it is about our own confidence, our own um, determination. You know, there's a saying, I can't remember if it was Margaret Mead or who it was, but that when we set the intention, when we determine to do something and we're really clear, the universe gets behind it. And probably we've all had that experience to some extent. When we're kind of waffly, well, maybe, maybe not, then not necessarily. But boy, when we decide something, this I'm going to do, it does seem like the universe backs it up, doesn't it? Things just begin to fall into place and it works out. But he also says that confidence and inner preparation without effort isn't sufficient. So we can't just sit back and say, you know, I believe or (laughs) whatever. There has to be the action that accompanies that confidence. And he talks about four basic steps, sort of um, the nuts and bolts He says, one, develop knowledge and skills in the desired profession or business. Organize work and business skillfully. Complete the necessary tasks at the right time. And look for strategic means of improvement. Just pretty basic. Then he talks about retaining Wealth and the value and importance of retaining the wealth that we do accumulate. So the first is take actions to protect wealth. We should protect it from the king or government, thieves, fire, water, and unfriendly relatives. You notice that's what at least three times that that particular list... (laughs) So they had floods and fire 2,500 years ago, just like we do now. And (laughs) difficulty with their relatives, just like we do now. (laughs) And obviously the government could get overzealous, I guess, just like now. So essentially what we would now call insurance, probably. Um, that it's fine to, in fact, it's important to do what we need to do to protect what we have diligently earned. The second is select wise and upright people for companionship and consultation. Be careful with whom you spend your time. Get skillful advice. And that's true at any time, isn't it? This is the advantage or the importance of kalyanamita, spiritual friends. At one point, the Buddha suggested that that was all of the spiritual life, that it was that important who we hang out with because we are so influenced by, and we influence, those with whom we spend our time, those that we hang out with. Three, spend according to a financial plan i.e. a budget. 
Four, take steps for self-protection, personal safety. It's important to live in a safe place and be wise. That I found interesting, too. It's important that we protect ourselves. Um, In all the Buddha's talk about nonviolence, he did suggest that self-defense was important with a caveat, that it was to be done with loving-kindness, without hatred, without malice, without ill will. But defending ourselves, protecting ourselves, is fine. So, too, protecting our financial wealth. Five, take the necessary steps at the right time, i.e., do not procrastinate or be lazy or negligent. That word negligent comes up time and time again. Six, avoid immoderation in romantic relationships. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? Avoid immoderation in romantic relationships. Um, We could probably say in any relationship that leads us to squander or be heedless or whatever. Seven, refrain from addiction to intoxicants, alcohol, drugs, shopping, (laughs) whatever, eating, you know, whatever we might be inclined to. Do away with gambling habits and avoid immoderate enjoyment of entertainment. Again, I think the idea of not squandering. um, We have... At this time, so much available to us in terms of entertainment, don't we? Especially in this area. And um, we, could, we could be drawn into that constantly and just live a life of going from entertainment to entertainment to entertainment. And I think this is probably what he's referring to, that, that we be wise um, about the use of our time and, and where we put our time and energy. So he goes on for, I would say, probably half of the book. The first half is about what I have talked about in terms of financial wealth. But the next half of the book um, and the Buddha didn't write the book, but this author, to talk about the Buddha's teachings on relationships, conflict, succeeding socially, making wise decisions, living daily life, and lasting happiness. And I think that's important because, as I said at the beginning, the value of prosperity or acquiring wealth is within a much larger context. So it's not just a single phenomenon, but um, having successful relationships and being able to deal with conflict, being able to deal with those that disagree with us um, or see things differently, being um, socially successful, 
making wise decisions, all of that is just as important as the acquiring or the accumulation of wealth. And again, he suggests that happiness is our greatest wealth. And in terms of lasting happiness, he considered renunciation to lead to the greatest happiness. But he encouraged the lay community to live our lives joyfully and meaningfully. And, you know, he did suggest that his teachings would not survive until there was the establishment of the fourfold Sangha. And the fourfold Sangha was um, monastics as well as lay people. So the male monastics, the female monastics, the male lay, and the female lay. So the lay community is just as important as the monastic community. And I think that's, that's important for us to remember. They're mutually supportive, and both are important, not one more so than the other. Um, it may be easier to reach nirvana from the monastic community, from the renunciation perspective, but it's not the only way. Lay people can become enlightened, uh, attain nirvana as well. So we have almost ten minutes. Um, thoughts, ideas, comments? Um, I'm really impressed that uh, at that age, or in epoch, whatever you want to call it, uh, <laughs> the Buddha was, uh, what's the word, gender, gender liberal or equal, mm-hmm. that, that he talks of the two sides of it, male and female, as, as having equal value. Wow, that is really something. It, I didn't know that. It was really something at his time, yes, yes, because he was in a culture where um, that kind of equality was not the norm. Not at all. And it's my understanding he did not go out and preach equality, but within his sangha, he made sure that women were treated equally to men. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, and the same with the caste system. Again, um, that he didn't go out and preach against the caste system, but within his community, there was no caste. Um, The hierarchy, if you will, had to do with um, the date that someone was ordained. So, you know, the oldest ordained person was senior to the youngest ordained person, rather than what caste they came from When you mentioned uh, predetermination, what I I thought of was I'm I'm seeing I, I don't know how widespread it is, but I'm seeing a form of predetermination when it comes to psychological labels. Um, I've seen it in the addiction field with certain 
clients where um, the fact that they're told that they have a certain diagnosis or a certain medical condition that some kind of say, oh, well, I can't do anything. It's predetermination. Or people who, who are diagnosed with various psychological conditions who say, well, I have no control over it, kind of. So that was the thing that came to my mind. Uh-huh. That's, that's interesting, yeah. That is, in a way, a form of predetermination, isn't it? Yeah. Either, either it's biological, therefore, can't do anything. what can I do? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Or even if it's psychological, well, that's what happened. That's how it is, yeah. yeah. And so, again, the Buddha kept inserting this idea that that it is up to us. Uh, I don't think he ever suggested that there weren't other factors, but, but he just kept um, reminding us that we can affect our lives, whatever our diagnosis, you know, we can affect how that goes. Did you have... Mm-hmm. I'm thinking a lot about um, happiness as you're talking. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I mean, in the context of, of the Buddha, then I, th- I have a sense of what happiness meant. And nirvana, I guess, was the ultimate happiness. But mm-hmm. in this culture we live in now, mm-hmm. I mean, for people of great wealth, it takes extravagant spend- expenditure money for happiness. <laughs> so, um, And then you wonder if... Yeah, that's true happiness. Right. So um, I'm, I mean, I'm just mulling that over. It's interesting, mm-hmm. but ultimately, it comes. Okay, what is happiness for me? Mm-hmm. Right. That's the bottom line. Yes. And yes. Um, you know, what are the factors that go into that, and how does wealth, mm-hmm. money, play out in mm-hmm. that? So I just think it's a very interesting mm-hmm. topic of thought. Mm-hmm. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Good. Yeah. You know, I was saying, for me right now. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's the greatest happiness, but one of my happinesses is sitting out. I live in a, a townhouse complex, sitting out in the grassy area, having my tea, and usually reading or writing talk or something. My dog is right there, and my two cats come out. And, you know, that saying, it doesn't get better than this, that's kind of how I feel. I, you know, there's grass, there's trees, it's a lovely day. And it's pretty inexpensive. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot of money. And that really is genuine happiness for me. Yeah. yeah. And what I thought maybe you were going to say, which I think is also true, is the more we have, whether it's actual money or things, you know, a bigger house, a fancier car, the more we have to do to protect it. And that takes more money, and it often means um, creating this at least visual barrier between I who have all this and all you out there who might want to take it or want to do something with it. Mm -hmm. And I find the less I have, the happier I am. You know, smaller houses, less to clean. 
a less expensive car is less to maintain. <laughs> yeah. But, but that's so anti-American. It's, uh, it goes against the grain, you know? Yeah, the end. I was just excited to hear what the Buddha had to say about employees and how not to squeeze them and how to take care of them and feed them and give them time off. And I guess it shouldn't surprise me um, that the Buddha felt that way because, of course, he was generous and compassionate. But um, it was just wonderful to hear that he had actually thought of that. And I think of all the the really successful companies, well, maybe not all the successful companies, but many of the successful companies in our country really do take care of their employees. Many do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, also many do not. You know, they become successful on the backs of their employees. And when we see CEOs making, uh, what is it, 200 or 600 times what the average employee makes, Yeah, last Sunday I had an experience of helping a group of people feed some homeless people in San Francisco and I didn't expect to be happy <laughs> but I felt after I felt really good I, it was really an amazing thing to help people that don't have shoes, don't have food and are cold and are just miserable yeah yeah. It was really yeah that came up last night as we were talking also all of us have found, I'm sure, whenever we help somebody, it makes us happy, right? And yet we seem to forget it. <laughs> and it reminds me of, you know, what the Buddha is purported to say, that if you knew the joy of giving, as I do, you would not let a single meal go by without having shared. Yeah. It's really true that happiness comes from sharing. And sharing doesn't have to mean depleting ourselves, you know, denying ourselves, but sharing what we have. Yeah. Um, I was going to say my kids always want more of everything. And so I've said they're like teenagers and he's a teenager. And I've said, you know, I could go to Best Buy or Nordstrom, I said, every day and spend $1,000. I said, and after a couple of months, we would want more things. Because at Nordstrom, maybe that'll buy you an outfit or two, but then you would want more. You would mm-hmm. never mm-hmm. be satisfied because there's so much more that keeps coming into the stores. And the day you buy the computer, they're already inventing the faster right. one. And you, yeah. you, it's an insatiable hole that just will never be filled. Exactly. For the kids who are born now and being raised now and the preschoolers who are um, doing, you know, they're actively marketing products now to kids under five. Like, what's your favorite app, little three-year-old? And, <laughs> and um, you know, it wasn't as much like that when my kids were little. I think it just started. They were more in elementary school. But it's going to be interesting to see how this generation is that I would guess like 80 to 90% of the kids below five will have been actively using some kind of device, it'll be interesting to see what this generation's going to be like when they're in their 20s and 30s. And you, you point to a very good understanding about desire, and that is the more we feed our desires, the greater they become. Yeah, it's almost it's like a monster. Yeah, yes, it's insatiable. You'd be like, oh my God, I love this app. But then the next day you'd be like, 
you know, I really would like the scar or whatever it is. And yeah. then the electronics yeah. thing, especially where we live so close to the Silicon Valley, and so many people are the people who have to buy the new phone or get the new iPad mini or whatever when it comes out. And um, so it can make people feel like they're poor if mm-hmm. they're not getting all the new things constantly, but you're kind of chasing your tail because you're never going to have all the latest and greatest because it, That's they're right. inventing it so quickly and mm-hmm. marketing it right. and coming up with so quickly, and, and they just are feeding, especially with the kids. We, we were at the mall, which we never go to the mall, but we had to get, I mean, as a family, we had to get something for my son's graduation. So at the end of the night, we met at the Apple store, which I never even go in there, even though I have a phone. But um, it was 10 to 9. It was closing, and there was like 20 people in there, 25. <laughs> I mean, the place is packed on a Saturday night. You know, five minutes before closing, because they've expertly, you know, and it's a great company, I'm not faulting them, mm-hmm. but they've expertly known that they put all this equipment out there and they've got kids touching it and they're creating these lifelong um, consumers. Mm-hmm. I mean, smart, I would have done it if I worked there too. <laughs> but they're creating these kids who just want every single product they come out with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so a couple things I was going to say. There we have impermanence and and greed, or as you say, the insatiability of desire. But then another piece you suggested right at the end, I think is something for us to contemplate. And and that is, of course, as a marketing tool, and to increase their sales, putting things out for the kids to handle is very wise. But if we think of it in terms of creating this insatiable desire and creating perhaps a have and have not. Um, I don't know. Is that an ethical decision? Makes you a good capitalist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. I'm a swimmer, and... um, not too long ago, I learned that polyester swimsuits last forever, which is wonderful for a swimmer because we go through swimsuits like nothing. And, um, and somebody was telling me this one company where several of us buy suits then face this dilemma. If they make their suits out of polyester, they last forever and people don't buy as many. If they make them out of the old lycra, then, you know, they stretch and people have to buy more. And I said, talking to somebody in the locker room one day, well, that presents an ethical dilemma, doesn't it? And her immediate response was, that's not ethical. And I think of that every once in a while. For me, it is. It's, but from a capitalist perspective, <laughs> it's not. It's... It's sales. Um, I think those are some of the things that we, in today's world, are faced with. And I don't have the answer, but I think it's important that we grapple with it, that we at least think about it and make our decisions um, based on how we've thought it out. So we probably should stop. Um, I'll be around if you have more comments. And thank you all.